the title of this talk was initially The Gospel and Extreme Poverty, Ministry in the World's Second Poorest Country. I'm, I'm not sure where those facts come from, if that's fake news, but I think that Burundi is a tremendously rich country, even though the World Bank and like the UN consider it to be one of the poorest countries. Um, we'll talk about some of those metrics in a minute. But as I've prepared this, this kept, question kept coming up in my mind and in my heart, and I think that it might be one of the questions in your hearts, too, as you've come to this session, which is, how is the gospel God's answer to life-threatening poverty? How is the gospel God's answer to life-threatening poverty? I'm going to try to answer that for you guys today in a, a few ways. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I know a lot of you here. Thank you for your support. Some of you I don't know. Uh, thank you for taking a chance. I am Carlin Wendler. I am the son of Bruce and Marilyn Wendler. They have been involved in FOF and my mom in choir and sojourners for a long time. I've been uh, listening to John MacArthur since uh, I was yet in my mother's womb. Um, been coming here for 38 years. I got saved at junior high camp at Lake Arrowhead. Um, and I got baptized a year and a half later, uh, just over there in the sanctuary. I became a member as soon as I turned 18. And um, we got sent out from here in 2012. Some, I had a Sunday night service. Some of you might remember John MacArthur kind of ribbed me on the way down the stairs because I was single at that time. Um, but in 2014, at the missionary conference that Grace puts on, I met my wife, Michelle, who's in the back. She was playing the piano, and um, she sang a song that she wrote and composed at the insistence of her band, and I knew that I had to talk to that girl today by the Lord's providence. She had put her Bible down in the chair right behind me. So we talked, and a year later, we uh, walked down the aisle got married here. And then our daughter, Gabrielle, was just born in June. So we're grateful to be here with our church family for those events. I'm an emergency medicine doctor. I went to UC San Diego for undergrad, University of Michigan for med school, and I did ER training at LA County USC in the ER, which we also call the Knife and Gun Club. So <laughs> we've seen some trauma, seen some things. Um, we deployed together in 2016 after spending our first year of marriage here in the States, and we've been in Burundi since 2017. Um, Kibuye is our place in Burundi. Um, Burundi as a country is relatively small. It's about the size of Maryland in area and population, so 11.5 million people. Their languages are French and Kirundi, their tribal language, uh, which is spoken by all three tribes, which are Hutus, Tutsis, and Twa. The Hutus are the majority, and they hold all of the positions of power in the government right now. The Tutsis are the major, well, the major minority tribe. Is that... A good turn of phrase. They are the um, largest minority tribe, and um, they used to be in power, but have kind of lost that uh, role after the departure of the Belgian and German um, colonists in the 1960s. And then there's this like tiny group of um, pygmy people, the Twa, who make up less than 1% of Burundi. They are the original inhabitants of that area in central, East Central Africa. The major religion is Catholicism, but it's like the Catholicism of Latin America, where it got kind of just blended up together with whatever beliefs pre-existed Catholicism. Uh, a little bit unusual, given that it was a German colony, but it was German Catholics who got there first. So around 65% of the populace identifies themselves as Catholic, uh, though they probably don't have a deep understanding of the differences between Catholicism and Protestant Christianity, uh, except that they use a different hymnal. So... 
That's a little bit about um, Burundi. Kibuye, where we are, is about 100 miles outside of the capital city, Bujumbura. Um, we have a, around just over 200-member church there. That was founded in 1939, so that obviously predates us quite a bit. Um, right now, the hospital is uh, over 200 beds. Uh, that work was started in 1945, but uh, we have, in the last five years, added 100 beds. So it started as... Well, it started much smaller, but when we got there, it was 100 beds. Now it's 200, and we're in the process of building a 125-bed pediatric ward right now. So it's getting big fast. Um, there's a Christian medical school associated with our Christian hospital, and that was started in 2006 at the uh, request of the president of the country because he said we have a problem. We have uh, our national medical school enrolls 300, graduates 30, of whom three will stay in the country. So we need a few more doctors um, 300 doctors for a country of 11.5 million is not enough. Um, for a reference, that would be like the entire population of Los Angeles County being cared for by just the interns at LA County USC Hospital. So you can imagine that there's some deep needs there. Um, and I am happy to say that since the first class graduated in 2012, there have been almost 200 graduates of this medical school. Not all of them have stayed in Burundi because some of them came from Rwanda and Congo and um, Uganda and Cameroon. We get a lot of Cameroonian students because we teach in French. Um, but the majority of the Burundians have stayed in Burundi, and some of them are getting advanced training now, which is great. Um, we love it because they spend like three months to a year on our campus with us. So life-on-life life discipleship with those medical students and residents, that's kind of our primary disciple-making push. So let me tell you some of uh, some statistics about Burundi as a nation. Uh, we talked about poverty already. GDP per capita, uh, gross domestic product per, per capita, is one way that people compare nations uh, for poverty. So Burundi at $320 per year, uh, per capita per year, doesn't uh, do so well in comparison even to neighboring countries. You might be surprised to see Haiti up there at 965, three times richer than Burundi, because Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. But um, hopefully this gives you visually a sense of, oh yeah, Burundi is a little bit behind as far as income goes. Um, populace insecure. Food insecure is a kind of technical term, but in short, it means that you don't know where next week or next month's food is going to come from, and you don't have reserves or cash to be able to procure that. So you can see that the majority of Burundians are food insecure, uh, maybe more poignant is the 60% of kids in Burundi who are stunted. Stunted means that you didn't get enough protein or calories during your first five years of life, so you will never reach your full stature or your full IQ that you would have otherwise. I call this the front side of the brain drain in Burundi uh, because 60% of kids are just never going to be able to think as quickly or accurately as they would have had they gotten enough food in their first five years. And then uh, under five mortality, this is your chance of dying before your fifth birthday. So Burundi's is one of the highest in the world at 8.2% of kids don't make it to their fifth birthday. Um, the U.S. rate is below 1%, so it's like not even on this map. Um, and you can see in comparison, Rwanda, which is a country almost exactly the same size, almost exactly the same population, the same two major tribes, Hutus and Tutsis, um, started off 15 years ago at almost exactly the same spot. They're just the neighbors to the north, so it's the same climate. I mean, they're very parallel countries. 
They've cut theirs in half over the last 15 years, and Burundi hasn't been able to make that same amount of progress. So we're, we're hoping, and we're helping, and we're trying to engage. But um, I want to take a second to talk about statistics. I don't know what this does in your heart to see statistics like this, to see metrics. Um, if I examine my heart, there's like this complex mix of emotions. There's like a lot of compassion, for sure, and like this, I'm stirred to some kind of charity, but then I'm also kind of like lost because I can't take on a nation. I mean, what, what can I really do? I get, sometimes I despair when I look at things like this, you know, for 15 years, Burundi hasn't made a ton of progress where they're under five mortality. Um, is, there, is there hope? Um, I got to thank my brother-in-law, David Rose, for this word, decathect. Have you guys, does anybody know the definition of the word decathect? It's a great word. It means to like, separate yourself from, a, a per, from someone or something that you fear losing. So you kind of like throw in the towel before it's actually totally over. You, you give up the match before it's formally over. And I think sometimes that's what happens in my heart. And actually, research shows that metrics, statistics like this, don't actually move us in the way that we would expect them to because we can't process them. There's very, I shouldn't say we as like all of us in this room. There's some people that can. There's some people who have that, um, that gift to be able to take data and translate it into action. But for the rest of us, myself included, we need stories. We need like human size and scale stories. So I want to tell you a few stories about life in Burundi. Um, every day when I walk to work, I live about 500 yards from the hospital. Um, as I'm walking across the field, I'll hear, Muzungu, ma ikaramu. Hey, white person, give me a pen. Um, if it's not a pen, it's money or like my white coat or just like whatever I'm carrying at that time. It could be my computer. And it's like a six-year-old kid, like, give me that computer. And I'm you wouldn't even, you can't type. You don't know how to turn it on. Um, plus, I think I need that. I'm giving a presentation at Grace Community Church a little bit. Um, so this happens all the time. And it, the word Mzungu, like, hey, white person, it's not politically correct. But it's also like Burundians have less compunction about sort of pointing out the fact that I look a lot different than they do. So it's not, it's not as rude to them as it is to me. So I have to try to remember that when I'm like, I'm wearing a white coat. You can just call me Muganga. You can call me doctor. Like, you know I'm a doctor. But anyways, <laughs> hey, whitey, give me a pen. So um, this case was a little bit different, though, because it was the afternoon. I was coming back up to the hospital. And where my path to the hospital crosses the kids' path to their primary school, uh, primary school, primary and elementary school, there's about 60 to 80 kids per class. So you know that there's not a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention happening. What they do is rote memorization. The teacher will say something and they'll repeat it back, or the teacher will write something on a chalkboard and they'll like memorize it, and then the next day they'll be tested on it. Um, they don't have pens or notebooks. So this is not them just being greedy for like extra pens. This is them wanting a tool to, to learn. And they, since they don't have paper, I don't know what they're going to do with the pen. They're probably just going like, to draw on their desk. But um, on the path from the school and to the hospital, they crossed, and there was a, this time there was like a six-year-old boy, and he was sitting there in the early afternoon, which is just about the time when school should be letting out. So he should be in school, but he's just on the ground, cross-legged, sobbing and moaning, 
And I don't know why, but as I approach him, I'm kind of like bracing myself, stealing my heart for the inevitable question and demand that's going to come as I cross his path. So I'm, I'm like a little apprehensive. I'm going to stop that story there, and I'm going to come back to it in a second. Well, at the end of the talk, sorry. So you're going to be on bated breath the whole time. I'm doing that with these three stories. I've got to keep you interested somehow. Um, this next story is an eight-year-old girl who came to the emergency room, transferred from an outside hospital. You see our ambulance right there. It's like a Land Cruiser with the back seats taken out. Um, and they paint it white with a red cross on it. I think it's awesome. Um, so this eight-year-old girl got brought in because she was so weak that the community health clinic, which is run by a nurse, they didn't know what to do. They thought she probably needed a transfusion. When we got her to our hospital, uh, we checked her blood, and her hemoglobin was below five. Normal for her should be like 12. So she was less than half of what she should have been. And she was, her heart was going fast, and she was, you could tell she was really fatigued. And um, <clears throat> I told the... I told the parent, well, the nurse told me, um, les parents disent qu'ils n'ont pas l'argent pour payer la transfusion. The parents say that they don't have the money to pay for the transfusion. It's like $6. Um, and so I said back in French, like, uh, you need to explain to them that their daughter, we can treat the malaria, that is the reason she has this anemia, but we have to transfuse her or she's likely to die. And so there's this conversation happens in Kirundi, and then the... And I know enough Kiruni that when the parents respond, I get it. And they say, then she'll die. Without any like, judgment, but just this like, utter despondency, totally stoic. There's no way we're going to be able to find $6 to pay for this in time for her to survive. I'm not really proud of what happened in my heart at that point in time. I'm going to tell you that in a little bit. But... Um, this was a very poignant moment for me, especially because I had just come from a conversation with the Burundian medical director of our hospital who was telling me that we're admitting too many patients who don't pay their bills. The government is six months in arrears paying the part of health care that they're supposed to pay, and this is the last month that we're going to be able to meet payroll for our nurses, so we have to do something. Every patient has to pay a deposit before they can go from emergency room to hospital, a deposit of $8 or we have to like, leave them in the ER and we can't treat them until they do it. And this is, this is going to motivate them to get money. And so when this all came together at once, my heart was a little bit dead and broken in that place. And uh, I'll give you a preview. I got angry. I'll tell you more about that in a second. Um, third story, we were talking as our team on one of our team meetings and uh, someone said, hey, have you guys ever gone to, uh, have you ever done communion at our church in Burundi? It's led by Burundian pastors and elders. And so um, some people are like, no, I've never had that. Or like someone said, I think I heard it announced one time, but it was like, they do the announcement so fast in Kirundi, I didn't quite catch it. And I was, I had actually been to a communion service. I was the only one who'd been to a communion service. I said, yeah, um, Pastor Hilaire told me about it after service one time. He told me in French so I could understand and they, like, they break, the service ends, they rearrange the pews, and then you go back in, and it's just a cappella singing, and you go up row by row to take communion up the front, like the pastors serve you communion. And I had to tell my team, I'm like, you don't have to share the same cup. Like, everyone gets their own little cup, uh, which is super nice. Um, but it was a beautiful service, and I really loved it. And they're like, can you follow up and find out when the next time it will be? Um, so I'm like, sure. I love talking with Pastor Hilaire. 
So I went and I talked with Pastor Hilaire. And um, I said, hey, um, when's the next time communion is going to be? And he's like, oh, uh, next communion will be next year, but we don't have the schedule that far in advance. And I said, it's March. Next year? Why so long? Like, why so long between communions? And he said, um, that's as often as we can afford to serve communion. And I was kind of, well, I was embarrassed. I, he might have been embarrassed too, I don't know. I, I blushed. I can't tell if he blushed because he's like well, a lot darker skin than me. But um, <laughs> I really regretted my like California directness at that point in time. Like, March, it's March, why so long? Um, and we'll talk about the conclusion of that story when we get through. I just wanted to circle back and talk about those emotions, right? So you hear the statistics, and maybe it's easy to despair. You hear the stories. I hope that registers a little bit more with our hearts, because I want, in this session, not just to inform your mind, but to ignite your heart. God calls us to love that consumes all of us. Heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's how we're to love God, love our neighbor as ourselves. So... If you can, I mean, you probably see yourself maybe in one or several of these sections. I want to get us to set aside even the compassion and charity for a second. And I want to move us in this talk to that last one in all caps, grateful for the gospel. My, I have found that when I have a gospel first process to um, understand and approach extreme poverty, it's a much richer experience for me. Sorry, no pun intended. Um, So let's talk about poverty and then the gospel and then how they work together. So according to the Bible, I find when I read the Bible, four definitions of poverty. These are, there's some overlap between these categories, but if you can accept it for right now, this is going to be the the basis. It's going to organize our thoughts for the rest of this talk. Definition A or definition one is just lacking life's necessities. Food, clothing, shelter. You guys probably remember in Luke, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man in Lazarus, and he describes Lazarus as a poor man covered in sores who desired to feed off of the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Like this is... He sets up a very extreme dichotomy, right? There's a rich man who has so much food that enough falls from his table to feed someone else. And it, he, no one was giving him anything to eat. So that's definition A. I think that's, when I say the word poverty, that's probably like right where your mind goes, is to, to that kind of situation. But the Bible also talks about other types of uh, richness and poverty. I'll say definition B is lacking wisdom, understanding, or insight into life. So this is like, if the first one is the physical, this is like the intellectual or maybe even ethical side. This is less um, just ignorance, being a kid, and more like naivete or foolishness, right? Uh, Colossians 2.3 says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding. Christ is the, in him are hidden the treasures of wisdom and understanding. These things are valuable. They're worth more than gold according to the writer of Proverbs, right? Solomon. So if you can be rich in wisdom, you can be poor in wisdom. I think you guys, you're tracking with me. I see some nods. I see some, some, eye, some great eye contact. Thank you, James. Um, definition C, lacking a life characterized by good works. Um, both um, Paul in writing to Timothy and James in writing to the churches 
They talk about being rich in good deeds or being rich. Um, the, the advice to the rich people is not to trust in their wealth, but to be rich in good deeds. So a life characterized by good works is a rich life. One that is characterized by evil or bad works is a poor life. And then the last definition is the most important, and this is spiritual poverty. Right? So we've got like physical, intellectual or ethical, moral, and spiritual poverty. And that is just lacking a right relationship with God. This is, um, this is pretty easy to understand. I like, I like citing Luke because, you know, he was the only Gentile to write part of the Bible, and he was a doctor, and he got to write just like a little bit more than the lawyer, Paul, <laughs> uh, if you count pages instead of books. But in Luke 12, Jesus tells another parable about a, a rich man who had so much wealth that he was like, I got to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And what does God say to him in that parable? He says, fool, right? That's number two. This very night your, your soul is required of you. So is everyone who is not rich towards God. Being forgiven, redeemed, saved, cleansed, purified, atoned for is a wealth beyond measure. So if you don't have that, you are poor beyond description. And I want, this is, this is going to organize our thoughts. So keep thinking of these four definitions as we, as we move through and talk about poverty. The question I posed at the beginning was, how is the gospel God's answer to life-threatening poverty? So how do these relate to threats to life? I think the first one is pretty simple and straightforward, right? You can understand that if you don't eat for a prolonged period of time, you will die. You didn't need a physician to tell you that. You already understood that. Um, Exposure, thirst, starvation. You guys got it. For the second definition, fools take risks. They neglect to make necessary preparations. You can, um, you might enjoy a quote from one of my med school friends, uh, Chelsea White the Fourth. He was from Virginia. He said, there ain't no cure for stupid, but it's a terminal disease. Um, so f- fools shorten their lifespan. Uh, for the third and fourth definition, for C and D, You can imagine that spending one's days estranged from God and engaged in evil deeds is just another way of saying dead in your trespasses and sins. So that one's not a threat to life. That one already ended life. We died at the fall, right? We all start our life spiritually dead in need of God to do something. So what are the causes of poverty? This question has been beaten around a lot. The world has kind of a... um, Probably the best and most generous perspective that the world can give on the causes of poverty are this kind of like geographic lottery kind of thing. Um, if any of you have read Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, he does a really elegant and thorough job of documenting, so why did Europe end up colonizing Africa and Asia and Latin America rather than some other combination? And so, you know, he looks at things like geology and geography. So, like, if you have a If the major axis of your continent is north-south instead of east-west, it means that a crop that grows in one part can't easily grow in another part, and so you can't spread food technology very quickly. Um, If you have, let's see, what else he found? He says, if you have um, no cultivatable grains on your continent, that's going to hurt you. Whereas Europe had like wheat and barley and millet and, I don't know, a whole bunch, potatoes. Africa had, like, sorghum and sweet potatoes. And manioc is really hard to grow. So there's some botany 
involved. Um, zoology. If the mosquitoes from your part of the world are the Anopheles mosquito that takes 90% of its blood meals from humans and only 10% from cows versus the Asian and Latin American mosquitoes that take only a third of their blood meals from humans, you're going to have a lot more transmission of whatever parasite that bug is carrying. And if the parasite they're carrying is falciparum malaria instead of malariae or vivax or ovale malaria, you're going to die at six times more the, the higher rate than those in Asia or Latin America who get malaria. And it's much harder to treat. So there's just, I mean, this is the best the world can do, right? Random constellations of effects and um, characteristics leaves one continent way farther behind than other continents. I would say that's helpful. That's from a very secular worldview. From a religious Christian worldview, sometimes we look at this as like God's, God's judgment. And sometimes that's true. I mean, God does use famine and war and poverty to chastise. But I think we go overboard with this. Hopefully, of the millennials in the crowd, no one has ever heard this theory. But there, there was a theory popular in days past, and it was used to justify slavery and segregation. that said, oh, God cursed Ham, the son of Noah, in Genesis 9 and 10. And the sons of Ham settled in Africa. And so that's why they have dark skin, and that's why they're behind in development and technology and, you know, why we can enslave them or, or keep them down. Um, that's been debunked so many times. I mean, I'll just point out the, the super obvious thing is that Noah cursed Canaan, not Ham. And we know where Canaan settled. And we know what happened to him several hundred years or his descendants several hundred years later when they were judged, when God's people came through and conquered the land called Canaan, the promised land. So just prima facie, it doesn't really stand up. But we can overdo even that, like, God's activity in this, that he's judging people for their, or by their poverty. <clears throat> but I will say, and at the risk of being so ultimate that it's not helpful, the causes of poverty are the fall and God's glory. The fall. You see, in the garden, no one ever went hungry due to lack of food. It was at, in Genesis 3 that God introduced scarcity and necessity by cursing the ground, and man had to work. And then, obviously, all kinds of strife happened. And the distribution of food became a, a, a point of contention. The glory of God, I want to, this is, I mean, I think that we can intellectually assent to that right away. Like, oh yeah, everything's for the glory of God. Like, God glorifies himself. But how does, how does poverty work into that equation? I'm not saying that poverty is good, but poverty glorifies God. Let me just give you a, a couple of verses. In John 9, you guys remember this. John, the beginning of John 9, there's a man born blind. And the disciples are like trying to figure this out. Because in, they're kind of in number two. They're like, God had to judge someone's sin for him to be blind. So was it his parents' sin because he was born blind? Or was it his sin that he was going to commit? Because that seems like you're punishing him before the crime. Or like, how does, how does this work? And Jesus cuts through all of it. Jesus just, like, shuts up their, um, their speculations with his response, right? John 9, verses 1 through 5. I'll just read the, the response. Starting verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Notice what he says. It's not, you're like, you're totally missing it. He is, was born blind so that I could heal him and glorify God. His suffering was to demonstrate God's glory. Um, in Mark 14, there's a, there's a story that is repeated in the three synoptics about a woman who anoints Jesus' feet with this really expensive perfume. She breaks this alabaster vial and pours it on her feet, and the fragrance fills the room, and then she gets immediately criticized. Why this waste? That's a year's salary. That was probably her dowry. This is a year's salary <clears throat> wasted. What does Jesus say? <clears throat> Mark 14, verse, I'll start at verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. And then he goes on to say that wherever the gospel is preached, her story is going to be included which I think is really cool that Jesus honors her that much. But this verse, more than any other, has uh, changed my perspective on poverty. Jesus says, and uh, I just read from the ESV, in the NASB it says, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. You always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. Jesus didn't end poverty in Judea or Israel during his 33 years on earth. He hasn't ended poverty yet. Now, maybe he will end extreme poverty in our lifetimes. People living on less than $2 a day, all of these food insecure people. Jesus, just as he didn't like heal every single disease and he didn't take out um, every, he didn't raise every dead person during his time on earth, he has a purpose. He has a reason. He's glorified. Oh, thanks. He's glorified in the, per, the continued existence of poverty in this world because he's leaving it there. Because he, I mean, Does he have the power to end it? Yes, he sure does. He has all the power. So to borrow Aristotle's four types of cause, I'll say that the final cause of poverty is God's glory. The formal cause is the believer's good, right? We know from Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose for, for Christians. Now, and the material and efficient causes can be more mundane, right? That's natural disasters, that's political instability, poor management of resources, and yeah, moral failure from time to time. So I'm not saying that poverty is good and that we should leave people afflicted because of some sort of karmic misinterpretation of God's sovereignty. But I want, to, I want to take that thought that God is glorified in poverty, and I want to expand it for you. But first I have to tell you what is the gospel. You, maybe you know, because you've been coming to Grace Community Church for a long time. And I'm going to try out an analogy of the gospel. Jesus used it by calling the word the seed. So I think I'm in, within rights. Um, I'm sure Mike Riccardi will come back to me and tell me later like how this doesn't exactly do what I'm trying to get it to do. But if I can say that the seed of the gospel, like the kernel that contains everything necessary for the gospel to go forward is this 
is the work of God as we, and we can understand that in like a set of propositions in essence. Like this is the, the word about the gospel. It is a holy God reconciling sinners to himself through faith in the vicarious life and work of Jesus Christ. We're going to go phrase by phrase for that because I want to spend some time on the gospel because I, I love it and it's the best and it changes everything, even my perspective on poverty. Uh, this is not an exhaustive, you see how little space I have to describe things. So go to Ephesians 1. Just read Ephesians 1. That will give you a good, um, I mean, it's so rich. It's just to give you this beautiful picture of that, that like uh, kernel, the seed that produces growth. And there's a plant that comes from this. And that is what happens in the Christian, in the individual who gets saved. There's forgiveness of sins. There's freedom from guilt and shame. And then there's power to live life rightly in front of God. And if you want a little bit more exposition on that, 1 Corinthians 15. And then finally, this plant bears fruit. So there's gospel fruit in the life that characterizes everywhere that the seed has actually um, established itself. And that's new relationships, answered prayers, bold witness, and then, yes, persecution. And then Philippians 1 would be a great place. So you guys have a lot of reading to do after this talk. Um, I'm sorry that I can't put it all in. There's just no, you can't contain the gospel, right? If it was a mustard seed, it'd become a tree, right? Mustard plants are not trees. They're like weeds. So this is, it's uncontainable. You can't write it down in one slide. So I'm going to take a bunch more slides. Um, Holy God. God is the author and definition of good, right, holy. In Isaiah 6, have you guys noticed this? In Isaiah 6, sinless angels cover their eyes and their feet with two sets of their six wings to to honor and reverence God's holiness. His holiness is way beyond the fact that he never sinned. He defines it. So it's like, what would happen if you took a bar of 100% enantomerically pure gold, like not a single atom of anything else, and you launched it at the sun? What would happen to that gold as it approached the sun, the surface of the sun? I don't even, I can only have like the physics words. It would be like, consumed and destroyed. Even though it's totally without flaw, it's not holy like the sun is bright and hot. That's God. God made and owns everything. So he's rich beyond description. Without even lifting a finger, he could think or speak a universe full of gold, platinum, diamonds into existence. God owes no allegiance, debt, or duty to anyone. God has all the rights. He's under no obligation whatsoever. He can do his will without consulting or considering anyone else. And he does because he created the anyone else. Right? Like this is, God is completely independent. Uh, I think it's the, the technical theological term is aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. Robert Mnugin's rubbing, not even said, good. Um, And then God punishes all sin. He doesn't tolerate evil. By his character and decree, every wicked, rebellious act, thought, or feeling will be corrected or condemned to ceaseless suffering in the furnace of his wrath. This is the God we're dealing with. He's reconciling sinners. So sinners are separated from God. I mean, that's, that's so straightforward, right? You guys have read Ephesians 2. You were formerly separated. 
sinners are dead in their trespasses and sins. We talk about poverty definition D, the fourth definition. Sinners are enslaved. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Uh, we're stuck. We're stuck on sin. We're, our setting is to sin, and we can't do anything to unstick ourselves. And sinners are without resource, recourse, or hope in this world. Like the bad news of the gospel is that you're a sinner and you're totally lost. There is no hope except if God were to do something. And that's that he reconciles us through faith. Faith is not a human accomplishment, right? It's a gift of God. This is, I mean, like, so you guys are reading Ephesians 1 because of the first slide. So just keep going. Just read Ephesians 2. That first half is just like this glorious, this is where you were and this is what he did. Uh, it requires someone else to act, right? Like my faith is not that I'm so good that I can get it done. It's my faith is that Jesus' work is enough. And then faith results in transformed living. So I came up with this really great turn of phrase last night as I was thinking about this, but I'm so sleep deprived from the baby that I can't remember it right now. Um, it's like faith requires repentance, provides regeneration, and produces renewed or new living. That went okay, right? Faith requires repentance, provides regeneration, and produces new life, new actions. And like I said, it's only as good as the object it's in, the vicarious life and work of Christ. So Jesus Christ is 100% God and thus infinite and sinless. I give you all of the, the passages here for future reference, but I can't help. I love Colossians because it's so Christocentric. Let me just read you Colossians 1.19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That him is Jesus. And then 2.9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is 100% God. Jesus is also 100% man. And thus empathic and can uh, stand in our place. There's a solidarity between Jesus and men because he's 100% man. And Hebrews 4 talks about that, right? He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Christ the Son relinquished his rights, riches, and position in obedience to the Father to save the church. Like this is the ultimate, I mean, we call it like the kenosis, right? He emptied himself. There's that line in the hymn, he emptied himself of all but love, love for the Father and love for the world. Like, this is phenomenal. That's the love of Christ, right? The love of God, we sang about it. I got to read, okay, sorry, I got to keep reading because this is the Bible and it's the best text that we get to study. Philippians 2. Five through eight. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus did. A vicar is someone who stands in the place of another. So vicarious is that substitutionary atonement that Jesus bought for us at the cost of heaven and his life. Such good news, right? Such good news. 
And it produces growth in my heart, right? It transforms the sinner to a saint. Forgiveness of sins. I mean, I've already thrown around these terms, right? This is like the imputed righteousness of Christ to me and my sin imputed to him. So that my sin is taken care of. And not only am I like blank slated, but I'm actually given his righteousness so that when God looks at me, he sees Christ. That's phenomenal. Because my life before Christ was shameful. And so now it's like the story of the, of the prodigal son where the father runs to him, right? Taking the shame on himself, puts his cloak on his like lost son, honor him, puts the ring on his finger. Why, is the, why the ring? That's his honor. That's his uh, sign of authority, right? You went from guilt to innocence. You went from shame to honor. And then you went from fear and powerlessness to the ability to live differently. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer, enabling us. We're, we're, we're set on sin before, and now we can, we can actually glorify God voluntarily, which is wonderful, right? You're never, you're never um, more at ease than when you're doing what you were created to do. So that's um, liberation, infilling. And then that produces fruit in my community. So the saint manifests this transformation in his or her life. New relationships. You become a member of the body and you, you have a ministry of reconciliation. You're trying to reconcile people to God. Uh, you have answered prayers. Right? Jesus talks about this. Ask in my name. It'll be done for you. If you're not seeing, if you're not seeing your prayers answered, it might be a sign that your will is not aligned with God's. Take whatever action you need to to correct that situation. Um, a bold witness. Right? We have... Love of church. We have public good works in the gospel. Like they'll know, they'll know us by our love. Our love for the church is a part of our testimony. There is, a, there is a witness that we cannot accomplish alone as Christians. We have to be part of the body. We have to be showing that love. Um, but then you should, you should be uh, proclaiming. We should be telling others, right? Because you can't hold it in. I remember I was 12 years old when I got saved and like I was on the airplane with my dad flying back from Nebraska. We had gone quail pheasant hunting. Sorry for the animal rights people. But um, he, because he flew so much, he had like an upgrade. So he put me in like the first class from this like Omaha to Burbank League or whatever. So I was sitting next to this first class guy and I was just saved. So I was like, sir, do you know how your sins can be forgiven? Do you understand what God has done on the cross through Jesus Christ for you? Like, let me tell you about it. And he's like, okay, thanks. That's very interesting. I'm like, no, you're not getting it because this is so good. This is really good news. You could be saved. All you have to do is repent. Like, just ask God for forgiveness. I did. He forgave me. It's amazing. It's wonderful. He was like, I think I re- he read, he said, you are the most passionate young man I've ever encountered for these things. And I'm like, thanks. I mean, it's the best news, Right? So if you haven't received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today's the day. You're here right now. It's not on accident. The good news is great news. So you're asking me now, you're like, so how is the gospel God's answer to life-threatening poverty? I, like, I love the gospel, but you're kind of like all over the place, Carlin. Bring it together. All right, I'm going to do it. Obvious. We'll start with the obvious stuff. How is the gospel God's answer to life-threatening poverty? Well, obviously, by definition D, where poverty is not having a right relationship with God, the gospel solves that problem. You went from dead to alive in Christ. That's called a resurrection. Only God does it. 
The gospel recreates people and reconciles them. I mean, look at these verses. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone in Christ, he's a new creature. There's no higher, um, you can't find better verbs to describe what the gospel does for the fourth type of poverty. Right? It's, it's like life and death, beyond life and death. It's like recreation. Less obvious, but I think you probably can connect it, is the gospel renews our mind. It makes wise the simple and enlightens the confused. So I just put some examples of there, up there. You might like, think about how your perspective has changed if you're in Christ um, and how it changes the perspective of people in your life. And then that's the thinking part, right? That's the ethical, intellectual. There's also that moral part. Right? Your behavior has to follow. Like right thinking does not result in wrong acting. Our pastor has said this numerous times. And that's, I mean, there's such a stress on thinking rightly because you're never going to act better than you think. So I give you a bunch of verses there. Um, but I want to tell you a story of how this plays out. And it's like one of my most embarrassing moments as a missionary. Um, if you can read French, you know that that says Primus Beer. So uh, the first year we were in Burundi, Kevin Edwards was the, you guys might remember him, he was a missions pastor here for a while. He came to visit us like a few months after we got to Burundi. It was like way too soon. But as I was driving him up from the capital to Kibuye, we crossed a billboard, we saw a billboard for this beer. And it showed like this African guy with this giant beer. And it said, you know, only uh, 1,200 Burundian francs. And the guy's like so happy with his giant beer. And Kevin Edwards was like, so help me contextualize, like what is 1,200 Burundian francs to like the people in your village? And they would make about 1,600 francs a day to do day laboring. So I was like, that's the majority of a day's wage. And then I started on this trail of like, and we were trying to think about ways that we can like encourage the men in our community to spend their money on like food for their family and medicine for their kids and education rather than on beer because it's kind of a problem and... And I was, I was like frustrated and I was like venting my frustration to Kevin. It's a two and a half hour ride. So we had to talk about something. And at some point in time, he just turns to me and um, Brad Clausen will like this. He turns to me and he says, uh, you know, Carlin, we found in Russia that when the men got saved, they started drinking less. And I was like, oh yeah, the gospel. <laughs> like maybe, maybe we should be working on that side of things and letting it have the consequences that it has because it changes the way you think and changes the way you act. It's a really good investment, actually, because it bears eternal rewards. Um, so this goes to like the, the noetic effects of sin. Like sin, the fall, every part of us fell at the fall, including our minds. So we can't even like think straight before Christ. Everything is darkened. Um, so we have a depraved mind that leads to sinful actions and that sets up a community and a society that does not follow God's plan, God's design for life. This has effects. And you can imagine that if the reverse were true, it would also have effects. So living in accordance with God's law improves outcomes. Um, I did a bunch of research for this. I probably could have done more, I'll be honest, because um, I was only looking for the conf confirmatory studies. But about 10 years ago, I read an article that was saying how Protestant missionaries who sought to convert the nationals, end up, those, those communities end up way more democratic and developed than even Catholic missionaries, uh, the places where Catholic missionaries went. 
which I was really fascinated by because this was like in a sociology journal. This wasn't like a Christian person saying this. This was just looking at it. And so I did some research and there's a whole bunch of articles. This is not just one article from uh, 2005. This was like, this is, this is a thing. This is known in academic research that if you look at the places where Protestant missionaries, and it's not just Protestant missionaries, it's Protestant missionaries who sought to convert to Protestantism, the Hindus or Buddhists or animists where they went, those places where they had the greatest spiritual impact have the greatest development impact, which I think is really interesting. It didn't have to be that way, but that's how it works out. So am I saying that getting saved gets you out of life-threatening poverty? Were it so? Um, I'll say this. Yes, mostly, right? Certainly saves you from spiritual death. Bestows on you every blessing in the heavenly places. It transforms your life from utterly devoid of good works to progressively sanctified. Takes your mindset on the flesh, which is death, to a mind of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding. So like three out of four were good. The first definition, I would say often, but not always, getting saved results in improved physical and fiscal health. The rest of the time, we're going to talk about that not always. So... I got three premises for you, and then a purpose. This is kind of like the summary slide, so if you're going to remember the four definitions, and then remember this one. God ordains all suffering, including poverty. This is the consequence of having a sovereign God. You can't deny that and hold God to be sovereign. God is loving, kind, and glorious in all his ways. Like These are premises, right? So I'm not, I'm not going to try to like prove them extensively. I do have verses for you, if you would like. Um, God has set his glory above the heavens. Psalm 8.1. Number three, poverty, like suffering, is not necessarily God's moral judgment against a person, family, or community. Right? We talked about that a little bit with the man born blind. So with these three premises, I have to conclude that poverty serves a special purpose in God's world. Let's talk about what that might be. Number one, poverty as analogy. God created the universe such that the physical and social structures of our lives often illustrate spiritual realities. So for example, God invented marriage so that we could understand the relationship between himself and Israel and between Christ and the church. Right? Like it wasn't that God discovered that marriage was this really good analogy for something he wanted to communicate. He designed marriage. Remember, this, is, this all is in his mind at the same time. Um, parenthood. He got invented parenthood so we could better comprehend the Trinity and the relationship between creator and creature. God invented growth and maturation, both vegetable and animal, so that we could understand sanctification and the worldwide spread of the gospel. God invented food so we could understand our relationship with truth and his provision for our every need. Like everything God made, not everything. I can think of a lot of things that God made that have actual direct analogies to some spiritual truth that God communicates to us in his word. So like war, brotherhood, clay, wheat harvesting and threshing, shepherding, wine pressing, lawn mowing, weeding, mountains, the weather, all of these things were designed to reveal something deeper, something spiritual. So why not poverty? Because Christ said it's going to be around until heaven. It must demonstrate something. So I would say it's a visible, tangible, visceral reminder of what man's spiritual state is like before Christ. Like, at a minimum, poverty is an analogy. But I'm going to go beyond and say that poverty is also preparation. 
So globally and historically, poor people are more likely to be religious, including Christian, than more affluent people. So this is not surprising to you because you know the Bible, right? Um, I want to be careful with my theology here. Poor people come to saving faith in greater numbers and as far as unconditional election and irresistible grace allow with greater ease than rich people. Jesus said this, right? It's easier for a rich uh, man to go through the eye of a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get in heaven. I mean, the disciples were like flabbergasted because they're like, wait, then who gets saved? Because the rich people seem like they have it. This is part of the great reversal that Jesus talked about, right? First, last, last, first, poor, wealthy, wealthy, poor. The, like, uh, those at ease are afflicted. Those afflicted are at ease. I mean, this is, this is like the sign of the coming of the kingdom. Um, within the context of God's chosen people, he also allows poverty as a means of chastising them back to him. I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy 28. This is going to get a little heavy, so I'm sorry in advance, but it's so, it just tells the story so in, in such an impactful way that I want you to hear it read and just imagine that you're Israel hearing this as Moses is sort of like finishing off his writing of the Pentateuch. Uh, let's start 20, uh, Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. You guys can just listen, because they didn't get to read it then. Just listen. He tells them the blessings of obedience. If you obey, everything's going to be great. But if you will not obey, verse 15, the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall, be, shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with the wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down unto, on you until you are destroyed. And it goes on for like the rest of the chapter, which is two more pages in my Bible, telling them what's going to happen if they disobey. And it looks a lot like poverty, right? Natural disaster, famines, droughts, affliction. So poverty prepares us to receive God. To receive him as he is. Um, Proverbs 30, 8 and 9 tell the same story in a little different way. Um, I'm going to say a third way that God uses poverty in his world is as a test. How we treat the poor, particularly poor believers, is an incontrovertible evidence of whether or not we have internalized the gospel. Let me read for you some some passage. We're going to go back to the New Testament. Sorry, I'm flipping you all around your Bible. But First John and James talk a lot about uh, poverty. And it would be great reading. But First John 3, 17. 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And then just a little bit over 420, 1 John 420, 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I mean, that's like, it's very bold, right? It's a very clear statement. Uh, James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Like Jesus' half-brother and the disciple he loved said, if you mistreat the poor, you're not a Christian. Like, oh, wow. It seems that God has a purpose in leaving the poor around and not just fixing poverty right away. So you can see what I said. Denigration, isolation, neglect, castigation, or any mistreatment of the poor Christians by rich ones invalidates the latter's claim to saving faith. But this is the best part. Poverty is also an opportunity for collaboration. So rather than smoothly, quickly, efficiently accomplishing all of his work by himself, God chooses to use us. I got time for like a quick story, all right? Um, When I was like five years old, my dad was building a shed in the backyard or on the side yard. And as a five-year-old boy, when your dad is building something, like you're there, right? I was 100% there. I'm like, I want to help. How can I help? And he's like doing his thing, putting together some struts and um, bolts and nuts and stuff. And he realized that he didn't have the right socket for the nut. So he's like, Carlin, I need your help. I was like, yes, yes, I'm on. What do you you want to do? He's like, go to the garage and get me a crescent wrench. And I was like, yes, dad, boom. And I ran to the garage. I had no idea what a crescent wrench was. (laughs) So I came back with a hammer because I knew what a hammer was. And I'm like, here's your hammer, dad. And he's like, Carlin, that's not a crescent wrench. And I'm like, I don't know what a crescent wrench is, so I brought you a hammer. Maybe that can help. And he's like, no, that's not going to help with the nut. Um, A crescent wrench is like a, it's got a handle, and there's this adjustable thing, and there's a C. You know what C is, because that's how your your first name starts with the letter C. Remember the C? And I was like, so it changes size so you can tighten the nut. I'm like, okay, got it. And I went off to the garage, and I came back with a C clamp. Do you guys know what that is? I mean, it's adjustable, the shape of a C. Like, I was doing pretty good. And he's like, oh, this is still not a crescent wrench. Let's go to the garage together, and I'll show you what a crescent wrench is. Could my dad have built that shed faster, more efficiently without me? Absolutely. He might even have been like a little tiny bit frustrated at my lack of crescent wrench knowledge. But, but like, check this out. Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, uh, a Gentile, a centurion, gets a vision. And actually an angelic visitor comes to him. Gabriel comes to him. Or an angel. I don't know if it's Gabriel. I think it is. But an angel comes to him and tells him the gospel. No. The angel comes to him and tells him where to find Peter. So God has a sinless messenger created to carry messages accurately, quickly, flawlessly. Go tell Cornelius, not the gospel, the message that will save him, but where to find Peter, who's like two, two days journey away. Peter, whose track record for like denying Christ is not so great, for like sticking his foot in his mouth, pretty dramatic, a sinner. This is the, I mean, like, why does God use us? He could get it done so much easier without us. But I think in the same way that me spending that time slowing my dad down to accomplish the work that he had to do was a chance for our relationship to grow and for me to learn a little bit of what my dad knew 
But he taught me about tools that day. I learned what a C-clamp and a crescent wrench were and how to tighten a bolt, or how, to how to tighten a nut on a bolt because he was willing to let me participate in his work. This is what God is doing by using us. So Jesus didn't, like I said before, Jesus didn't evangelize the whole world during his ministry on earth, but he taught his disciples how to. He didn't eradicate poverty, disease, or disability, but he trained us to engage them. Now, I want to be very careful. This is not to say, this is not to say that development efforts are the same as discipleship efforts. There are people who, who talk like this. Um, people say like the, the proclamation of the gospel and the demonstration of the gospel are just two wings of a dove. So you can't fly without either one which is good in giving a lot of uh, credit to how important the proclamation is, but maybe overdoes it on the demonstration side. I'm going to try a new analogy on you. Rodney will tell me if I'm going off base. But I would say that disciple-making is the song. Proclamation is the melody comprehensible by itself. You can understand the right hand. But demonstration is the harmony. And God wrote the song to be played with both hands. I'm married to a pianist, so like, go with me with this one. Like, the melody is the proclamation, but the harmony is the demonstration, and the song is disciple-making, right? He said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What's Jesus' command? I mean, he summarized it in two. Love God and love neighbor. You can talk about that, but it's how much better is it when you demonstrate that at the same time as you're talking about it? So I want to finish these stories real quick. These guys, give me a pen. I'm walking in. I'm just like, oh, this kid is probably going to ask me for something because they always ask me for something and I'm not feeling it today. And he does. He's like, ma ikaramu. You know, ma ikaramu. He's crying, right? And um, I'm like, did you ask your mom for a pen? Because I try to, like, I have to do something to interact. And he's like, we don't have any pens at our house. My mom says there's not enough for a pen. And I'm starting to wonder, like, is this why he's not in school right now? Because it's school time. And I said, did you ask God for a pen? And he's like, no. I'm like, why don't you pray and ask God for a pen? Because he sees the two pens in my white coat. And I'm like, these are the hospital's pens. Like, they give them to me. I get one every three months. Like, if I give it away, then it's not really mine to give away. You know, I'm just, you know this, this is just justification in my head. So, like, ten steps later... Just like the Holy Spirit is convicting me, and like, Carl, you have a you have your own pen in like your scrubs pocket inside, and so I'm like, maybe God wants to answer His prayer through me. But now I've been like, I can't give you the pens because they're the hospital pens. So I take my pen out of my scrubs pocket. This, I literally did this. You're going to be embarrassed. You're like, why are we supporting this missionary? And I'm like, hey, look, a pen on the floor. <laughs> and I give it to him. And he stopped crying. Um, <laughs> like, that literally happened. And so you get an insight into my heart. But I hope it also shows, like, that question that God put in, what if God wanted to answer his prayers through me? I have, what's in my hand? I have a pen in my scrub pocket. For this patient, the, the girl, the eight-year-old girl who was so anemic that she was going to die, when they said, we don't have money to transfuse her, I got angry in my heart because like, it's, it's like 4 or $6 to transfuse your daughter or she's going to die. 
And you're telling me that you can't like ask your friends and neighbors and relatives to put together. I mean, that's what the that's what Burundians normally do. Sometimes there's like a little bit of a they're trying to figure out if like the white guy's going to pay for them or not. <clears throat> but eventually they're like, okay, well we'll go to our village and, and get this taken care of. And so I'm like, man, life is so cheap here. And I was angry. I was a little bit burned out. You can tell. I was a little bit burned out at that time. But I'm like, life is so cheap here in Burundi that for like six dollars you would let your eight year old daughter die. Um. This is before I had a daughter. And, um, and so I, I knew this was the wrong heart attitude. So I actually went into the, like the, the area where we do x-rays. I just closed the door and I sat down. I'm like, God, you have to help me because I can't, I can't face this scenario. And the conviction came so hard and heavy. Like, are you going to let this kid die for lack of $6 when you have like $60 in your house? And I was like, no, I can't do that. There's no way. And then once, once he had convicted me that I needed to give, then I started to understand what poverty meant to this family. Because I wasn't asking them <clears throat> to like empty their pocket dander and get f- five or six dollars together. I was asking them to go to all of their neighbors and relatives and ask them to empty all of their cash reserves. These are, these are people who might have a little bit of corn in their home, but they don't have like cash sitting around. Nobody has cash sitting around. Uh, they could try to sell, like, if they owned a goat, they could try to sell the goat to pay for this, but, like, that would take time. They didn't have time, and they came from a, a village health clinic, so, like, they weren't even near their village. And so I was like, wow, maybe it's not that life is cheap here. It's that everything is, like, the prices are depressed. Because what would that be in America, what I was asking them to do? Which one of us, if you needed a chemotherapy regimen for your kid that was going to cost, like, a gazillion, bazillion dollars would go to all of your relatives and all of your neighbors and say, I know this is weird, but can you just write me a check for everything that's in your bank account? All of your liquid cash reserve, I need to deplete right now to save my daughter. How many of us would do that? Go door to door. Call up every single one of our relatives. I don't know, and how much money would that be? That would be like, that could be like millions of dollars. I don't know, I don't know what you guys have in your checking and savings right now that you can just write a check for, but that's a lot of money in America. And, and I know we have like, go fund me and stuff for things like this. But that's pretty rare. We, we, we take note when that happens. That's what I was asking them to do. And so I went down and I got the money and we transfused the girl and she got, I mean, she got better. She did fine. But my heart got healed a little bit more too. And then with communion at church, we had that awkward conversation with Pastor Hilaire. And then I went back to my team and I said, we have to do something. We got to help. The bylaws of the church say that they got to do communion at least four times a year. They can only do it once a year because of funds. And you know what they take in a weekly offering at our church? If you subtract out what the missionaries give, they make between 75 cents and $1.50. 200-member church. I was like, oh, pastors don't get a salary. That's why they have to work at the hospital. So it, like, changes things. How will it change us? If I can leave you with any like take-home points, I know we don't do this often. Like, what's your? Here's your application, but this is like general enough. I think it'll work for everybody. How is the gospel God's answer to life-threatening poverty? We said grateful for the gospel is where I wanted to get us all at the end of the day. So, when you're next time you're confronted with poverty, and I, I'm sad that it's like when you're getting off the freeway and there's a a guy with like 
leather for skin, holding a sign that says, you know, anything helps, God bless you, or whatever. There's way, we could talk more about what poverty looks like and how that visible manifestation of poverty might not be an accurate picture of what poverty in America looks like. But remember the gospel with Thanksgiving, right? That guy begging is actually way better off physically than I was off spiritually before Christ. Like his poverty is to demonstrate something to me about where I was without Christ and how rich am I. If you start from this place of gratitude, like, because the guilt can't sustain, but gratitude carries us way further and, and um, draws us closer to God. So start with gratitude. And then I would encourage you, link up with gospel friends. That could be people in this room, people who are interested in these, I mean, you're all here, so you're like a little bit interested at least. There's people here you can connect with and start talking about, like, hey, what would it look like for us to engage this? Maybe it's that guy on the, on the off-ramp, but maybe it's, like, something a little bit bigger. Um, homelessness in our community or um, malnutrition in kids. Link up with gospel friends, start talking about it, and then do something together. Um, if you identify with the poor to see the analogy of your spiritual state and remember what God sacrificed for your salvation, it'll be easier to engage them. And I'll tell you, some of these gospel friends that you link up with might be of a different socioeconomic class than yourself. You'll find amazing people all around the world because the bond of Christ is way stronger than the bond of class. You can come to Burundi and enjoy amazing fellowship with people who live on less than a dollar a day because you love Christ and they love Christ. And they will, like the kids especially, man, they just worm their way into your heart and then you're like, I'm sold. I'm going to do whatever I can to help. So I'll leave you with this quote. If Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Love, you can sacrifice without loving, but you can't love without sacrificing. So I think I took like all of the time. Sorry, guys. But um, if you want to contact me, here's my email. Um, I set some newsletter sign-up sheets at the front. Hopefully they made their way to the back. I didn't really explain that very much. But I appreciate your time and attention. Sorry that was kind of long. Hope it wasn't too exhausting. Remember the gospel, friends. Let me pray and close this out. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great news of the gospel and how it changes everything, including our approach to our poor brothers and sisters and poverty in general. Lord, I pray that you would seal the things in our hearts that are from you and that you would just erase whatever wasn't. Would you make us a little bit more like Christ for our time that we spent together today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.